If you have your copy of the scripture, would you take it out now with me and turn uh, in John's gospel to chapter 14. We'll be giving attention to verses 15, 16, and 17 this morning. As Jesus continues in the upper room, this, uh, what is commonly referred to as the upper room discourse, the Savior is uh, giving his uh, priorities, he's uh, explaining his concerns for his disciples and of course his church in the years, the days, the generations following his uh, ascent into heaven when his physical presence is no longer with his people. And he speaks now of his commands, the function, the role of obedience in the life of his people, as well as of his truth. That there is a holy consistency in the lives of God's people, a growing consistency in the lives of God's people, worked by the Spirit of Christ, who both manifests the presence of Christ, as well as enables the people of God to manifest Christ. More. So I want to consider three things uh, with you uh, this morning. We'll uh, look more at verse 15 as we see saved for obedience. And then in verse 16, helped in obedience. And finally, verse 17, the spirit of truth. Before we read God's word, let's pray, seeking his help and blessing. Almighty God in heaven. We are so weak and feeble. We have just sung that we obey all your statutes, and yet we know this is only true of us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that only in him do we have a righteousness that satisfies your law. And so we praise you that you have given us what we lacked. And yet you are the almighty God and your spirit is at work within us both to will and to do according to your good pleasure that we might be renewed in the whole man after the image of Christ. And so now we have come to the reading and preaching of your word where your spirit especially works. And so we ask, O Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us not to shut the gospel from us, not to shut the kingdom of God from us, but to open it. Open the kingdom of God to us that we may repent and believe afresh with renewed commitment, desire and hunger after holy things. O Holy Spirit, work in us, empower us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let us now give attention to the reading of God's word from John chapter 14, beginning at verse 15. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you. And will be in you. Amen. Thus far in God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. The Lord Jesus Christ continues to explain the ongoing relationship he will have with his disciples after his departure and his glorification. And here, that 
his disciples will continue to love him. And that that love for him will be seen in our obedience and in his powerful presence. As he continues to be with his people by his spirit. So let's look again at verse 15. Saved for obedience. There is a change that takes place in the life of a Christian. And the Lord Jesus Christ highlights that remarkable change for his disciples in his absence as he goes from his earthly presence to his heavenly glory, having prepared a place for them by his death. This change will be manifested in spiritual power, the spiritual power that they lack in his physical presence, they will receive because of his enthronement in glory. They will have access to the throne of grace through him. And he promises to do whatever they ask in his name and for his sake. And so in verse 15, we see at least in part why this is. Why, will, why is it that his disciples will do greater things than he did? It is because his people are obediently seeking his glory over and above their own as they live according to his commands. And so he's referring back to the change that has taken place in Christians as they become Christians now. There's a a change in priorities. Not only has Jesus spoken of the change that will take place when he is ascended into heaven, but now it it results from the change that takes place in his people when they become his own. A profound change of priorities. A change of life for all who follow after Christ. Remember what we were. Remember what all people are outside of Christ outside of his salvation, outside of Christ, we could care less for his commandments. Romans 1, 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, and so on and so forth. Or Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit which is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Romans 8, beginning at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the things of the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot. Please God. And so about whom is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking in verse 15? He is speaking of those and only those who have been saved by his grace, transformed, born again by his spirit, and so made to love him because of the salvation they have experienced. And so the Lord Jesus Christ here is not speaking of how people are saved. 
He is speaking of those who belong to him. He is speaking of those who love him and those who have been loved by him. And that love, our love for Christ and Christ's love for us has a profound effect, an impact upon the way his people live. Formerly, his people lived that, that old life was disobedience to God. It wasn't just disobedient as an adjective, but it was a life of disobedience. It was a noun. Disobedience is the way, is the way of life of the non-Christian. Disobedience is the location of our life outside of Christ. Thoroughly corrupted. And salvation and love to Christ brings forth the fruit of new obedience. Turning our backs on the old life and the old disobedience. And it is motivated. This new life that he has given to us. This new life, this new way of life is motivated by obedience. It's motivated by love. Sorry. It's manifested in obedience. But that love is is seen in obedience. We considered last Lord's Day that Jesus has in view more than simply his commands, but all his teaching, his word, all the revelation of God in the Old and New Testament. The Christian, the one who loves Jesus, desires to obey him, desires to show the love she or he has for the Lord Jesus Christ because we have been saved for obedience. Saved for righteousness and holiness. That Christ has freed us from keeping the law for salvation. No one, no one has ever been saved by his or her own obedience. Right? Galatians 3, 11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Now Adam in the garden had the opportunity to save himself. To earn God's favor and God's approval by his obedience, didn't he? Adam in the garden, though, failed miserably. And none of us have done any better. And so Christ, the second Adam, comes and saves us by his obedience. Christ gives us a new nature. And with that new nature comes the ability and the desire to obey his word Because of the salvation we have received. Calvin summarizes it this way. He says, writing on this new nature. A nature of pure and genuine religion. Calvin says, the man who loves Christ. The man who has been redeemed by Christ. Restrains himself from sin. Not merely. Because of the dread of vengeance. He restrains himself from sin because he loves and reveres God as Father. He honors and worships him as his Lord. That even if there were no hell, even if there were no punishment, he would shudder at the thought of offending this God whom he loves as Father. Think on that, Christian. Hell is... Is, is off the table. If you are in Christ, 
Hell is off the table for you. It's, it's not an option for you. God's condemnation of you, if you are in Christ, is not an option. And yet obedience flows from love, not from, from fear of punishment. Robert Louis Dabney said similarly, he said, Of this holy life, the law of God is the rule. The believer, justified in Christ, does not indeed look to the law for his redeeming merit. But he receives it as his guide to the obedience of faith and love as fully as though he were still under a covenant of works. What Dabney and what Calvin are saying is the Christian does not obey because he fears God will not accept him. The Christian obeys because he knows God has accepted him. God has loved him because he knows the love of Christ. So this obedience of which Jesus speaks is not out of a fear of punishment, but out of a desire for our God's pleasure. This obedience flows from a love that has been brought forth from our salvation. It is a love we cultivate by meditating on his love for us, by reflecting on his life for us, which stimulates further obedience and service to him. Perhaps you've, you've had this experience in life. You've, you've been lazy about meditating upon the love of God. You've been lax about thinking on the greatness of Christ's salvation for you. And then you find yourself drifting off into sin, yielding to temptation. And you say, well, it's because I'm weak. Yes, it's because you're weak. Because you're not fortifying yourself in contemplating the love of Christ. The love of God for you. It is the love of God which stimulates obedience and service for the Christian. Notice that the Savior speaks of keeping commandments. This is a positive obedience of keeping his word. In our day, as in every day, uh, there are threats to Christianity from within, from those who assert that the word of God and the law of God have little significance to, to guiding and governing Christian behavior. There are those who assert that obedience to the law is legalism. Yet Jesus makes so clear here, and again in verse 17, and, the, and in all the sentences that follow, that obedience is an important aspect of the Christian life and a particular sort of obedience, isn't it? Not an obedience out of a, of a servile fear of punishment, but an obedience that flows from love. To find peace of conscience, to find joy in the Holy Spirit and assurance of salvation, one must seek to be living by God's word, striving to obey his law, but to live by faith and obedience because of love for Christ. Yet even for those who affirm the role of God's law for Christian living, often we take too narrow a view, an unspiritual view of God's word, viewing the law merely as a prison or merely as, as walls that, that tell us what we can't do. But what God's law does for the Christian is show us what we are freed to do, how we are freed to live. 
But God's law, as it forbids murder, does not just simply tell us not to murder. It teaches us to love our neighbor so that we will seek his good. God's law does not simply tell us not to commit adultery. But teaches us to delight in the wife of our youth. God's law does not simply tell us not to do any work on the Sabbath. God's law teaches us to rest in God and grow in holiness and to delight in the Sabbath day. God's law does not merely command us not to covet, not to crave after our neighbor's stuff. God's law teaches us to find contentment in Christ. Well, let me ask you by way of application. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? And is your religion pure and genuine? Is your love to Christ a sincere love? Can you say with the psalmist, direct me in the paths of your commands, for there I find delight. Or I remember your ancient laws and find comfort in them. Is your love to Christ seen in obedience to his commands that is evident throughout the week, not just for 75 minutes on a Lord's Day morning? Is Christ's spirit at work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure? And do you see the fruit of Christ's spirit at work in you in love and obedience and Christ's, Christ's likeness? Well, if so, well then praise God. And seek more of his grace. But if, if, if not. If you search your life. And, and, and you find I'm not growing in holiness. I'm not growing in obedience. I, I don't have a love for the law of God. Well then seek his grace. Search your heart. And use his law to search your heart. To expose the wretchedness of your sinfulness. And come to him in faith and repentance. And you will find grace and pardon and new life. And finding grace and pardon and new life. And experience of the love of Christ. You will have a love for Christ. That will bring new desires. And new priorities. Come to Christ. He has saved his people for obedience. But that obedience is not something we conjure up on our own. Look at verse 16. The help in obedience. This obedience is enabled. Jesus continues moving from one thought to another. United by his purpose to strengthen his disciples in and for his absence. And so uh, Jesus, notice what he does not say. Sometimes noticing what Jesus does not say is, is almost as important as noticing what Jesus does say. And so notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, if you obey me, then I will send you another helper. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will send you. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is going to happen. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. And so just as the obedience of those who love him is certain, 
And we considered that at greater length last Lord's Day. So too it is certain Jesus will send another helper to his people. Jesus promises to pray to the Father. And the Father will send him. In fact, the coming of another helper is essential to our obedience. Jesus' bodily presence is about to be withdrawn from his church, but that does not mean his people will be spiritually impoverished or without his support. In fact, this helper is another, another of the same kind. His ministry will be like that of the Lord Jesus. He will continue to do what Jesus did. He will continue to call sinners to repentance and faith. He will continue to build up the church for Christ's sake and the glory of Christ's name. This one whom God will send at Christ's asking will continue to advance the work of Jesus. Why will he do this? Because he is another of the same kind. He is like Jesus. And so let's consider the nature of the helper. This is a difficult word uh, to translate. If you're using the English Standard Version, you see that in uh, the fifth footnote there. Many ways to translate it. Uh, The Greek word, as many of you will know, is paraclete, not the bird. Paraclete with an L. It's a compound of two Greek words. Para, which in this case means alongside, from which we get the English word parallel. And kaleo, to call out. One who calls out alongside, maybe. He's a divine person who comes alongside Christ's people to continue the work of Christ, to enable us to pray effectively, to enable us to do great works, to enable us to obey Christ's commands. So how are we to understand this one whom Jesus asks the Father and whom the Father gives? In his work, Knowing God, J.I. Packer says, the average Christian is in a complete fog as to what work the Holy Spirit does. The average Christian is in a complete fog as to what work the Holy Spirit does. Notes Jim Packer. Well, in fact, the translation of the word paraclete has been difficult. If you're using uh, the authorized version, or the Geneva Bible of 1599. It is translated comforter. And that's a good translation for uh, Elizabethan English, in which comforter meant one who gives encouragement, aid, and or strength. Uh, but today, uh, a comforter is that thing we take out of our closet around this time of the year and put it on our bed to keep us warm in the winter. Uh, so perhaps comforter is not the best translation today. The New International Version uh, says counselor, which is another good translation. Uh, It picks up on the comfort and support as well as the legal uh, metaphor Jesus is using, that of a counselor. But for many of us, when we hear the word counselor, we think of that person who roasted marshmallows with us at camp. And the ESV has helper. Which is another good translation, but I can't think of the prefix hamburger whenever I read the word helper. 
as is often with the case, the helper isn't, isn't the main one, isn't Right? It's, it's, the helper is someone who helps another who is basically sufficient but makes the job faster and easier. When we lived in Mississippi, uh, we lived in a small town and uh, they had a man to come fix uh, something at the manse. Well, he tried anyway. Um, and he had a helper with him. He wasn't, he was a, a young kid, maybe 18, 19 years old. And, and that young kid's got job, I think, was entirely to cut it on and cut it off. That was, that was all he did as the other guy did all the work. I don't know how you can cut something on, though. I, I, I misunderstood that expression the first time I heard it. You've heard of cutting off. But a helper, we often think, is, is not someone who's fully competent to the task. He's maybe an apprentice. And so in those three words, comforter, counselor, helper, we, we get an idea of, of what this person does, but it's, it's a difficult thing to translate, to understand the nature of the Greek word Jesus is using. No one English word gives the fullest sense of the Greek word. In secular Greek, a, a paraclete was a person, was a, was a legal assistant, an advocate who came and helped and supported another person in court as a favorable witness and a legal representative. Would you turn to, to 1 John 2? Perhaps the best way to understand this term is to see how the scripture uses it elsewhere. 1 John chapter 2. Verse 1. John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, the Greek word translated advocate in 1 John 2 is also paraclete. And this gives insight into both what Jesus means by send you another, another like unto himself. But Jesus is sending us an advocate, a comforter, a helper, a counselor who will come up alongside us here just as he is in heaven advocating for us before the throne of grace. This comforter, this advocate, this paraclete, whom Jesus sends will be with us forever. Jesus ministered on earth for but a few years. But the helper, the comforter, the advocate, the counselor, the, the paraclete will abide with us, will stay with us to minister Christ's presence and support us forever. See the love of the Savior for his people. And he asks the Father who sends one like himself that his people will never be without his presence. And so the spirit of truth. He is the spirit of truth. This is the comforter, the spirit of truth. Jesus has said not that long ago, remember, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And now Jesus declares that the paraclete is in fact the spirit of truth. Giving clarity to the, the closeness of this helper to Jesus. 
Jesus is the truth and this, this helper is the spirit of truth. If Jesus is the truth, the paraclete is the spirit of truth and he brings Christ's presence and power to his people. It's an important thing to understand that he is the spirit of truth. What is the relationship between the truth and the spirit then? In college, we had a dean of chapel who was an evangelical, but he was quite open-minded. And he would try to explain to us how uh, different types and styles and expressions of worship were all equally valid and we needed to uh, support, accept, and affirm one another in our various choices about uh, worship and its expression. And one of the ways he did that was by uh, giving a homily from John 4. Some of you will remember in John 4, the Lord Jesus Christ declares that the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. And uh, the dean of chapel asserted that sometimes we worship in spirit with mimes, mimes, or rock bands. Uh, And sometimes we worship in truth with a sermon, with rich ancient hymns. So his, his thesis was you, you worship sometimes with your spirit and sometimes with your mind, not mind. See, it's hard. Mind. We, we, we had a group at Grove City College called Clowns for Christ, and they would mime with, with an M-I-M-E, not mind. Sorry. Um, but that's a false dichotomy, isn't it? We've been considering a number of those in Sunday school. That you sometimes worship in spirit or you worship in truth. But what does the Lord Jesus Christ note in John 4? Jesus says in spirit and truth. It's not an either or. It's a both and. God is spirit and those who would worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And so the Lord Jesus Christ here introduces his spirit as the spirit of truth. You cannot worship in the spirit if you're not worshiping in the truth. You cannot have the spirit of God apart from the truth of God. Our worship must be spiritual and founded in the truth. The Christian life is one of growing in God's truth as the spirit of God works in and through us to make us love Christ more, to enable us to love Christ more. And so this is the spirit whom Jesus sends, whom Jesus asks the Father to send. He brings the truth of Christ and applies the truth of Christ to the people of Christ. Thus Christ continues his ministry through this Holy Spirit. Christ, through the spirit of truth, inspired the apostles to write this New Testament. As his apostles were carried along, By the Spirit of Christ, faithfully writing the Gospels and letters for us, Christ, and and through His Spirit of truth, enables us to read and to understand the Scriptures He has inspired. And so, uh, consider the, the necessity of a close connection between Spirit and truth. In our days, as in most days, it's it's fashionable to be spiritual. But you, you remember those surveys that people take that they'll answer, well, I'm, I'm spiritual but not religious. Which typically means they have some sort of nebulous, undefined acceptance and encouragement about 
all paths being uh, open to the higher power and whatever makes you happy is, is good. It's, it's something like what would be on Oprah back when that show was on. Probably has its own TV channel now, doesn't it, Oprah? Um, but to be truly spiritual... You see how this culture has, has twisted, and every culture does this. It suppresses the truth about what it is to be spiritual. To be truly spiritual is to have deep communion with the Spirit of Christ, who is the Spirit of truth. And the Spirit of truth conveys the truth about God, the facts, the revelation of God as given and applied in the Scripture. Rick Phillips, pastor of Second Prayers in Greenville, South Carolina, He notes this, to be spiritual then is simply to be biblical. To be spiritual is to be biblical. And where do we find the richest communion with the Spirit of God? But in the Word and Sacrament, where Christ is revealed to us, where the Spirit takes from Christ and gives to us, revealing Christ to us. And so indeed, the spiritual person will not be accepting of all manners of ideas and opinions, but serious and joyful in his or her devotion to the truth of God and joyful at the discovery of God's truth. The spiritual person will continually seek to be renewed in his or her own mind, with a D, in his or her own mind. This is Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 12. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may, by testing, discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. There's a word of application for today, isn't there? How can we discern God's will? How can we know what is good, acceptable, and perfect? But as the spirit of truth renews our minds, And speaks to us in the scripture. And so he says, you know, you you have this spirit of truth. But the world, the world cannot receive the spirit. If the spirit reveals the truth about Christ. Then he reveals the falsehoods of the world. The false theology. The false spirituality. The false philosophies. The false ideas of the world. In fact, Jesus will say as much in John 16, verse 8. And when he comes, the spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Here, Jesus confronts the idea, the worldly idea, which is very popular in our own day. That Christians should not hold strong opinions. That Christians should not be dogmatic about false teachers. But that's actually the opposite of what the spirit of truth does, doesn't he? The spirit of truth enables us to discern truth from error. And so the spirit comes and exposes the difference between the Bible's way, between God's way, between the true way and the world's way and man's way and the false way. But people, even those who call themselves Christians often cannot handle or cannot accept the Spirit's ministry is one to separate truth from error. It's merely one aspect of our world's rebellion against God. 
We must guard our hearts against that idea. That there is no distinction between truth and error. There's another sense in which the spirit is against the world. The world is suspicious of what it cannot see. The world is in rebellion against God's kingdom. The world is always in rebellion against the kingdom of God. Don Carson puts it this way. He says, if the world were not in rebellion against the kingdom of God, it wouldn't be the world. In Revelation, right? The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. When the world ceases to rebel against our king, it won't be the world anymore. It will be his kingdom. Paul alludes to this in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The world is only interested in material things and will be continually doubting and mocking the work of the Spirit. Isn't that so often the case? The world mocks those who come to Christ. The world mocks those who leave off, who let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. They think what a strange, what a silly, what a foolish exchange. When a person becomes truly spiritual, truly biblical though, he begins to care about the truth of God. And how does the world respond? With criticism with doubt, with scoffing at the idea that a person would turn his or her back on what is seen and what glitters to embrace the kingdom of God, which is like a mustard seed now. What will the Spirit do in the the disciples? He will minister to the disciples, won't he? He dwells with you and will be in you. Remember who Jesus' disciples are. They are all who follow him. And so the world will deny, the world will not recognize the Spirit's work, and yet he dwells with the disciples. The Spirit of truth dwelling with Jesus' disciples, remember, is not a reward for their good behavior. It's not a reward for their obedience. The Spirit of Christ is a gift of Christ because of the relationship they have with him. The Spirit is guaranteed to all Christ's people because Christ loves his people. He is a gift to his people because Christ loves you. The Spirit may be a gift of Christ to his disciples and he may serve, he may minister to the disciples, but he is nonetheless fully God. He shares that that same divine essence as Christ. Remember in Acts 8, Simon Magus wanted to buy the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given and cannot be bought. The Holy Spirit commands the church even as he ministers to the church. We'll note this briefly tonight in evening worship. In Acts 13, the Spirit is commanding who is to go, when, and where. He commands the church even as he serves the church, ministers to the church. And so the question we should ask ourselves regarding the spirit of Christ, the spirit of holiness, the spirit of truth is not how can I get more of the spirit? 
But that's often a question people will ask. How can I get more of the Spirit? The question we should ask is, how can the Spirit have more of me? For the Spirit is not merely given or received, and He is. The Spirit of Christ is experienced in the Word, in the prayer, in the sacraments, in worship, and through all our godly living as He dwells with us and we know Him. And as we know Him, we know Christ. And to know Christ is to know the Father. The Holy Spirit is sent from heaven to bring Christ's presence, to relieve our sorrow that we may know Christ has not abandoned us, but continues to conform us to his image, to shape us to his will, to hear our prayers and to equip us for his service until the day he returns and brings us to the place he has prepared for his disciples, for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, we thank you. We thank you that you have given us such a great Savior who asks of you that you would give to us his Spirit, the Spirit of truth. Would you write upon our hearts all the glorious truths of your word that we may walk in them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.